0: listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines the Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, conversation, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. Today, we are discussing episode 9 of season 5, Unidentified Black Males, also known as the Hot Outside episode, which is fitting because it's a scorcher in LA today. The title is an ironic but elegant way to summon many past storylines and bridge them to the present episode. Tony missing when Tony B was arrested was blamed on unidentified black males. Same for the death of Jackie April, also referenced in this episode. And later, as we'll see, Tony B applies the same explanation for his foot, as does Vito for what happened to little Polly. Today I'm joined via Zoom by my friend Ron Bernard, the man, the myth, the legend behind the beautifully written Soprano's Autopsy. Ron, it's great to see you again and thank you for joining me on this journey today.
1: Mandatori, thank you for having
0: me. Before we jump into this episode together, I got to ask you, I've been wondering this for years, what inspired autopsy
1: so i guess i did a rewatch of the show i guess around 2009 and i just started taking notes which is kind of a habit i have with movies and i think sopranos was the first time i did it for a tv show and you know the show is just so rich and so deep like before i knew it i just had like a hundred pages of notes so i also started reading a lot of material at that time i wanted a better understanding so, you know, I was looking at the TV critics and they, they, they write in a particular way, like a very kind of, you know, popular user friendly way, but they don't do any kind of research or anything. Then I was reading like, uh, like the academic scholars, they do a lot of research and a lot of citations and stuff, but they don't, they don't really, uh, you know, it's not easy to read. Like you have to be a grad student to understand what they what they what they're writing. So I thought there's, there has to be something in between, right? So I, I just saw this kind of empty space in between there. So I just, you know, built a ramp up to that empty space drove my line out right up in there. That's how Autopsy was
0: born. I love it. I mean, I've, I've told you this in person, but besides David Chase, you inspired Pada Bing. So thank you.
1: Thank you. Okay. okay no, I got to tell you, I... So you guys really inspired me. Like you forced me to like step up my game and especially you, you know, I, I, I've heard podcasts that are inspired and inspiring, but, but you're in a class by yourself.
0: Well, that means a lot. And, um, honestly, it's, uh, it's largely because of the stuff that I read that you put out. So thank you again. Let's get on with it as uh, Tony Soprano would want us to. Okay. Let's do this. HBO synopsis, a rumor involving his cousin, puts Tony's relationship with Johnny Sack back on thin ice. Meanwhile, Meadow helps get her boyfriend Finn a job. AJ ponders a maximum security summer at Casa Carmela. Melfi links Tony's current guilt to a past job. And Carmela learns that good legal help is hard to find. This episode was written by Matthew Weiner and Terrence Winter. It was directed by Tim Van Patten and originally aired on May 2nd, 2004. We open another opening frame on Livia's house. Different angle, closer up, but Mother Mary is the central figure again to begin this episode which always symbolizes to me, we're gonna talk a lot about symbolism because I've got my boy Ron with me today. This always symbolizes peace before destruction. Nice. In the back, Tony and Tony B are watching TV outside. Long power cord, hot day, couple few dosekis, and some super nachos. Ron, what would your version of super nachos consist of? <laughs>
1: I'd have to go Miami-style, just heap it up with a lot of Latin American meats. You know, some chorizo, some ropa vieja, some lomo saltado, or some chimichurri sauce, and uh, black beans, of course.
0: Damn, sounds amazing. I don't know how kosher that would be in soprano land, but I will definitely join you on those. Hey, come
1: down to Miami. We taught the world how to eat.
0: (laughs) Tony B. tells a story about a guy in The Joint. Crazy. Rasta fuck used to make grilled cheeses on the radiator guy had a whole system Rastafarianism is a religion an Abrahamic one that came out of Jamaica in the 1930s they refer to God as Jah and believe among other things that Jah took human form as Jesus Christ cannabis is their sacrament mm-hmm. which is awesome There is connectivity to this episode, Ron, in that Rastafarianism is Afrocentric and principally concerned with overcoming the oppression of Blacks. Many know Rastafaris when they see one, visually, thanks in no small part to Bob Marley. As for cooking grilled cheeses on radiators, that is nowhere in the Rastafari handbook. Rather, I'd say, the Rasta fuck Tony B spent time with, more likely than not, came out of the school of MacGyver over here. <laughs> As I warned you, Ron, you are perfectly entitled for awkward silences after my well, sometimes awful attempts at humor. I love it. Tony notices TB's limp, calling him TB ever since Carmela called him TB last episode. TB says he got jumped by two black guys in Irvington, an unsafe place, to say the least. Started in part thanks to a crack epidemic in the 80s. The town's violent crime rate is six to eight times higher than other parts of New Jersey. Things have tapered off a little since 2010. Vera Farmiga grew up there. Really? So did Joe Morello the drummer in Dave Brubeck's quartet, oh. whose vinyl I have on my wall in my office. Mm-hmm. And also, speaking of Rastas or Rasta-like, Praz, Prakasrel Samuel Michel from the... Can you name the group? Praz from... cheese uh, I can't remember now. The Fugees. The Fugees, yes. Okay. Cut from Sweaty Cheese... To two pristine cuts of beef, whisking past Tony's table, teas at dinner in the city, at the old homestead steakhouse around 14th and 9th. Not with Johnny and company, which is what we thought first time we watched it, but with kids and Finn. With his kids and Finn, I should say. T asks about Finn's summer plans. So Finn, you got any plans for the summer? Going back to Mission or to surf or whatever. Ron, does Finn seem like the surfing type to you? Hi, you know, he kind of seems like
1: anything to me. He's kind of a generic character. I think that's why he functions so well as a kind of viewer surrogate. So, I mean, he kind of, you know, he seems like the polo playing type. He sounds like, you know, the pig hunting type, like whatever you
0: want to say, like fill in the blank. Finn's an everyman. Have you been to Mission Viejo? No, I haven't. Let me tell you about Mission Viejo. Let me tell you a couple of three things about Mission Viejo, Ron. (laughs) It's in Orange County, and it's one of the largest master-planned communities ever built in America. Which is to say, it's no wonder Finn would do anything than go back there. (laughs) And by anything, this episode means it. The prospect of getting raped and murdered looked like options for him rather than flying back home. (laughs) Great. Mission Viejo is known mostly to California people as a place in between LA and San Diego. And I'd like to think it's a perfect landing spot for witness fucking protection. Predictably, Finn says he wants to stay in the city. AJ laments summer school. Finn says it can be a good time. It's what you make of it. Then he excuses himself. Also kind of like Mission Viejo is what you make of it. I think was kind of the point that the writers were going for. Right, exactly. (laughs) Tony asks for the check. The waiter says the young man took care of it. Ron, culturally... This rule applies across the spectrum, right? You eat, I pay. Uh,
1: I don't know. I mean, to me, it was like a nice gesture, right? It kind of, to me, it seemed like it shows how upside down soprano world is. Like Tony just kind of bit this guy's head off, right? For doing this nice gesture, that wouldn't happen in the real world. Not, not. It would, you wouldn't have an overreaction the way that Tony had.
0: You might have had the dad or the patriarch figure say something during a private moment, but not public facing like that. Fair. I feel like Finn should have known.
1: Yeah. So I think that's also like a, actually a a big part of this thing. You know, this whole episode, we see how out of his depth Finn really is. Yes. And we also, I, I think, you know, you were saying this is the hot outside episode for sure. I think it's also the masculinity episode. Like, there's a lot of moments here where we see people trying to be masculine, right? Tony, I think Tony kind of feels emasculated when this kid is paying for for dinner
0: here, right? And this
1: is a kind of theme that comes over and over throughout the episode.
0: Wonderfully said. Some California bullshit, to say the least, as far as Tony saw. Right. Finn just wanted to reciprocate he says. And Tony's thinking, don't give me any of that reciprocity bullshit. He throws way more than the bill on the table and leaves. Again, talking about your masculinity theme right there. Dropping more than you need to, right? Should Finn have kept the money? Is something I've always kind of wondered. Taking money from a mob guy makes you sort of you're beholden to them, right? It's whether you've agreed to that contract or not you have become somewhat beholden to him was that dangerous in your mind
1: yeah i wondered the same thing but you know i guess at that age it's hard not to take that kind of money you know and again it, it kind of shows you just he's he's over, he's you know out of his death
0: yeah but to tack on to that he does have a columbia degree yeah and he made a comment about McJobs jobs that, that are out there And if nothing else, he could have donated that money to a McJob fund to remove the taint of taking money from Tony Soprano. But we'll never know. This is all just conjecture. AJ looks dissatisfied, or AJ looks satisfied, I'm sorry, and then scoots off. That was a great scene for him, even though he didn't say a word. And then we get the great exterior shot, the Homestead Steakhouse, King of Beef, New York's oldest since 1868. Truth in advertising, still going strong. I went on their website this morning, Ron, and they're taking orders for delivery. So it's good to see that they're still cranking.
1: (laughs) So, you know, I I checked out their website also the other day. And uh, when I was doing a rewatch for this podcast, and I noticed that they're actually located in the meatpacking district. So when you look at the sort of gay theme, gay panic theme, I wonder if Chase actually purposefully chose a restaurant in the meatpacking district. You know, it's kind of a nasty little pun, but I think this episode is actually full of little sexual innuendos and puns, especially blowjob puns.
0: Thousand percent, and I'm save that for when we get yeah. there because in your write up, that was a beautiful sort of constellation of blowjob puns that you organized and it was really interesting to see and it's exactly what they're doing and and like i pointed out in this picture behind me the fact that the truck says creamer on it and the fact that the crane says creamer on it is not accidental
1: abundant intentionality
0: there abundant intentionality absolutely uh finn standing nervously outside tony assuages him all is good for now ron what do you think Tony makes of Finn? Is this the kind of guy that he's okay with his daughter being with?
1: I think so. I mean, I think Tony might think he's kind of a medigone. You know, his name ends in a vowel. But, you know, he's, he's, he's essentially a white guy, right? And he does seem like a nice guy. And, and I think Finn actually kind of earned some of Tony's respect by trying to pay. Tony actually has some kind words to him. Uh, Outside the restaurant there.
0: Cut to two guys bonding curbside to two gals bonding inside over some wine, Carm and Gabby. Carm's filling Gabby in on her reconciliation in motion with Tony. Note her vibe fluctuation takes on a very Tony flavor here, as does Meadows later. She's eager to see where this goes. Gabby, too. Tony pulls up. She thinks they'll have a chance to talk, but he waves and bails. Her face melts. Tony have an agenda, Ron, or was that benign? I thought it was. I don't think there's an agenda. I think Tony just
1: takes Carmella for granted. He's taking that they're going to reconcile now after what happened, you know, in Marco Polo in the last episode. He's taking it for granted that they're just going to get back together. You know, but I, the fact that he drives away, I think, changes the trajectory of this whole episode.
0: Yeah, just putting that escalate in reverse yeah. changed everything. Absolutely. Subtlety. At first, she holds her head high, proud almost, but then it drops. Not sure if Tony realized it, but he dropped her like Apollo. Dropped Balboa in one. Oh, for Rocky. Inside, she checks in with AJ. Was your father in a rush now? Or something? Note the now. There's an immediacy there to that, just that one word that Tony's supposed to be around the house all of a sudden. It's changed, right? All of season five so far has been Tony's out of the house. And now... Her use of the word now was almost, dare I say it, kind of desperate. Right. She was existing in a space where Tony was never supposed to be, her and AJ having dinner at the table by themselves, but now Mm. it's like Tony's supposed to be around because of Hugh's birthday. It's interesting. Yeah, that's a good catch. AJ hands her an envelope full of cash and a kiss on the cheek from T. Carm plays it off to Gabby. She does to Gabby, Ron, what Tony does to his cronies. What he did just last episode, right? With Tony B when discussing Hugh's birthday jubilee. Gotta say the word jubilee because of the Beretta! jubileo. Another bit of subtlety. Note how she puts the envelope of cash down like it's contaminated and then rubs her hands together. What's this? COVID-19 protocol now. <laughs> Where are the soap suds? Are you still washing your hands religiously, Ron? Oh, absolutely. Are you wearing masks when you go outside? I have masks. masks uh, I, I actually got little booties for my shoes.
1: I'm being very careful. I, I got some, uh, some Everclear 151 in case I've run out of alcohol around the house. I can make my own sanitizer.
0: What is the status on states reopening? Is Florida reopened or is Florida still closed? Uh, the governor
1: is planning on tentatively reopening next week. But I just heard uh, our mayor, Miami-Dade County mayor, saying that he has no plans to reopen.
0: California shut down until at least May 15th. Painful, but, but it's
1: probably a smart thing.
0: It's painful, but I just listened to an emergency, the head of the emergency room for New York Presbyterian. And he's also like the head of their global public health for the city of New York. He was on a podcast and his basic point was going outside can just re-trigger this whole thing and and start a whole cascade of having to do this all over again.
1: This is going to be with us for a little while.
0: But what are we, Ron? Public health officials now? (laughs) Cut to Tony and Johnny Sack getting in a round of golf. King of New York, Ron could use some work on his swing yeah Spinoff series reality show where johnny sack gets golf lessons from a pga pro ends with him walking off the green we're done here
1: <laughs> you know what i think stupid a fucking game
0: <laughs> we've seen him on the links before with the two carmines if you've noticed when Matthew Weiner and When Terry Winter write episodes, we get a lot of callbacks to previous visuals and previous storylines. Right. Safe to say, though, that Johnny Sacks golf progress since the two car mines. It's been slow. Still a work in progress over here. He deflects his bad shot by invoking the dead. Joey Peeps. Yeah, it's sad when they go young like that. When they go... Ron. Mr. Empathy over here.
1: (laughs) It's crazy how Johnny Sack just immediately brings it up, right? And we never even heard of this guy before, really. I mean, we never knew they had a relationship. But Johnny Sack just brings it up, and he's so emotional about
0: it. He's convinced, right, that little Carmine was behind it. Right. Payback for Lorraine, he says. Sack says on account that they were an item. Ron, Sack is convinced about a lot of things this episode. Ever since becoming the boss, he has this sort of like, I don't need evidence. I just know almost a Nostradamus quality to him, if you will.
1: Yeah, but the thing is, he's actually not wrong. I mean, he's a pretty smart guy. He's putting, he's putting two and two together.
0: So you attribute it to him being intelligent and not him being sort of Blood for blood, kind of like part of me has always thought, and I'm with you, what you said, but part of me also thinks, like, in this world, they got to go eye for an eye, right? He wants to draw blood quick and fast, and he wants to take the lowest hanging fruit possible because of what he did to Carmine's boat. He's expecting retaliation and he just wants to jump right back in without really gathering the facts. Yeah. Is there any validity to that? Him just being a quick trigger?
1: Absolutely. So I think with Johnny Sack, there's sort of two interpretations of him, right? One is that he's just got a kind of berserk button, right? We saw this with...
0: There you go. Yes. Right,
1: with with the Ginny joke, right? He just went berserk with uh, Ralph Ciparetto back in, what, season four. So maybe, you know, the death of Joey Peeps is kind of another berserk button for him. But then the opposite way to think of it, which is kind of what you're saying, I think, is that he's, he's kind of, you know, the, in game theory, there's this idea called the Hamlet strategy, which comes from a line. Hamlet says, though this be madness, there's method in it. And Hamlet basically just pretends to be crazy because he just he wants to escalate things. Right. He, he wants to keep his enemies kind of, you know, on their feet and, and he wants to be unpredictable. So I don't know if that's what Johnny, what Johnny Sack is doing here, that he's kind of, you know, he, he has all this certainty because he wants to escalate the war with uh, Lel Carmine.
0: Ron, the fact that you just likened Johnny Sack to Hamlet and summoned William Shakespeare <laughs> is next fucking level. Autopsy over here. I love it. This is the Shakespeare of our times. In more ways than one. Yeah. He gives us the Joey Peeps backstory. His fondness for him, you mentioned. Plucked from the chorus, which also has a sort of sexual undertone or overtone, if you will, given that the episode that we're in, what happens to a lot of choir boys, right?
1: Right.
0: Groomed since he was a driver. Johnny's cop on the payroll, nice little slip in says he saw a guy limping away from the crime scene. Does Tony know Ron right there that it was Tony B?
1: Yeah, I think he's putting two and two together. He's a smart guy. All the
0: permutations. He has a panic attack, which is obviously the giveaway, but could be for a variety of reasons. Johnny is describing grandmas of Maine coffee cake as this happens. Joey Peeps used to give this to Ginny every year. Did he mean Grandmas of New England, I wondered. Ah. Also, I wonder if Joey Peeps was in on the candy stash, Ron. Like, maybe (laughs) the coffee cake was a Trojan horse for Snickers bars. (laughs) That's why his death would be particularly devastating for her. Anyways, what is this? Unsolved Mysteries now. (laughs) Tony falls. Johnny helps him up. (laughs) But not before taking a drag from his cigarette. (laughs) And explaining to others that it's the weather that brought Tony to his knees. That the sudden change fucked up his respiratory system. Again, Ron, while he's smoking.
1: Hilarious. Good catch.
0: Too good. Just too good. It's not the it, it's not the catch. It's the writing. It's all in the script. Yep. It's all in the script. Absolutely. Credit to the writers. One of the passers by offers electrolytes. Again, the writing. I laugh at this every time. The matter of factness of it or something, like a random stray guy walking down the golf course just shouting, give him some electrolytes. It's a very New York thing. It's something you would hear someone saying in Central Park as they're walking by you, and you're having a situation where they're not going to stop to help you, but they'll tell you the answer to your problem. The matter-of-factness of it always gets me every time. I can't explain it. It's it's a you know, and
1: what you're saying about, about Johnny Sacks' certainty, like, how is he so certain that Tony's not having a heart attack here? Like,
0: that was right. my first thought. You got to call 911. Connectivity Corner. We haven't seen Tony fall like this since Richie got to him at the country club in season two. Right, exactly. That Boston song. In both instances, Ron, uh-huh. he looked like a safety, seeing Barry Sanders break through a gap of a porous defense. Oh. That's for people. Let's say I don't do any football references.
1: <laughs> hey, if you're going to do basketball references, you, you got to do it before 2000, 1999, or else I'm not going to be able to keep up with
0: you. <laughs> okay. I don't actually think I have that many in here. Um, I'm, I might have added a couple at the last minute. All right. Cut to Little Carmine. Are you watching the Jordan documentary by any chance? Yeah, I did see it. There's nothing else to watch. So uh, I feel like a lot of non-NBA fans will will succumb to the power that is his airness. Oh, man, it's pretty amazing, though. I mean, you know what I,
1: I didn't remember is that Oakley was actually on the Bulls when yeah. he was there. Like, I always associate Oakley with the Knicks, right? And that early 90s Knicks team was, like, my favorite team. That was my team right there with Starks and Mason, Ewing.
0: Oh, you were you were cheering against Jordan.
1: Yeah, I
0: was. I just love the Knicks. That Starks dunk on... Uh... Jordan is probably one of the top five dunks in NBA yeah, history.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I love Stark. He's my favorite player.
0: Cuts a little Carmine. Pouring himself a drink mixed with Marie Brizard, Probably Marie Blizzard. <laughs> this is turning out to be an episode of oldest evers, Ron. Marie Brizard is one of the oldest liqueur makers, going all the way back to 1755. There's a theme that I have with old stuff. Stay with me on Okay. The point I'm trying to illustrate, little Carmine says. Ron, do we illustrate points? Are we okay with that verb choice here? I'm okay with uh, Carmine saying it. He gets away with it. We're going to break this scene down together. I'm going to set it up a little bit, but in your write-up, you have an amazing corollary to the, the time that this scene was written in and the context. And I want you to sort of rehash that if you will and maybe even put a little 2020 context on it if you can Sure. the changes come from war he continues all right there's a hint got a question for you about that in a second too and then rusty echoes it's a new day to which i always think tupac and above the rim over here and if you don't know what i'm talking about watch it Note then, staying with this theme of war and staying with this theme of America, note the bald eagle bust in between Carmine and Rusty as they decree their new world order. Ron, a couple of revolutionaries over here.
1: Man, I didn't even catch that eagle bust, to be honest. You didn't? Oh, that put some so
0: well into, into my whole theory. I'm fueling your theory here, okay? Right? Uh Here we go. And this is where you're going to jump in. Rusty says his quadruple bypass surgery has given him a lot of perspective. Time to think. Force needs to be met with proportional force is his thing. And this is where I'd like to bring up your link between this scene and the situation room scene of the White House during the Bush administration and their decision to invade Iraq.
1: Right. So a lot of people thought, I actually first saw this on uh, the Chase Lounge on the forum, but I kind of just kind of expanded on it. So the theory was that Rusty's very hawkish here. He wants to go to to war. He sounds a lot like Dick Cheney, especially that mention of quadruple bypass. At this point in time, Cheney had actually had four heart attacks. I think he's had more than that since, but at that time he had four heart attacks. And, you know, you can kind of find an equivalent for all of the characters in this room right now to somebody in
0: in the Bush administration. Angelo, though, urges for diplomacy. But he's reminded that this thing of theirs ain't the U.N. Another nice little tacit sort of parallel to Politics, right? If only Little Carmine knew he was quoting his nemesis, Johnny Sack, right there, though. (laughs) Right. And then Little Carmine thoroughly confuses everybody except himself. Help me through to the other side of this one, Ron. Okay. Let's put on our English teacher. I have a kindergartner at home. I'm trying to help him make his E's go in the right direction and make his F's go in the right direction right now. There's also a little bit of bush here, too. So speak to that as well. I'm going to read it. Try to explain it to me. Okay. Try to explain it once and for all. (laughs) I may be a stronger man than my dad was, but the fundamental question is will I be as effective as a boss like my dad was? The cut to Angelo blowing smoke is everything. (laughs) And I will be, even more so. But until I am, it's going to be hard. <laughs> I can't even do it with a straight face. And I fucking I practiced it before I talked to you. <laughs> it's going to be hard to verify that I think I'll be more effective. I, I kind of
1: think he's a secret genius, right? There's, it's almost like a Zen Cohen. Like there's some kind of deep wisdom there that we just don't have the brain power to understand
0: so you artfully illustrated some bush isms that I had since forgotten, right This has been a long time. I was you know i'm I'm well versed in the bush presidency, but I had forgotten this until I read autopsy now, after reading your parallel quotes from Bush, that if nothing else totally connects Lil' Carmine.
1: Right, right.
0: And of course, it's also the
1: fact, you know, Bush kind of tried to fashion himself as this kind of down-home Texas guy. And here we see Lil' Carmine wearing blue jeans. He's got this big old belt buckle. You know, plus the fact that Bush, of course, is the son of uh, George Bush, uh, what, Herbert Walker Bush, yeah. And here we have though Carmine, who's the son of, of Carmine Sr.
0: So there's a patriarchal component in his well. Right, That's the parallel. Wow.
1: So the other thing that I hadn't thought of at that time uh, is Angelo. Like, who would Angelo be?
0: That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah.
1: So I, I think, especially with the United Nations line that uh, Carmine throws at him right now, I think he has to be Colin Powell, right?
0: Interesting.
1: The diplomat. Exactly. He wanted diplomacy, but he was kind of pushed into going to the United Nations and making the argument for war. And then afterwards he actually had he regretted, you know, making that argument for war. And we actually see Angelo here. You know, he has some regrets about putting the hit out on Johnny on Joey Peeps.
0: I love it. I was trying to like circulate around. Who would be the diplomat of that time? And you nailed it on the head, Colin Powell. Certainly. Yep. Cut from a certain little Carmine to an uncertain Finn. Nice. Finn says his parents offered him a flight ticket home on JetBlue, but no economic relief. Ron, what is this? 2020 now? <laughs> or do some things never change? Pandemics, not with <laughs>
1: some things never change.
0: Note the art surrounding Meadow. Knew this was coming. You knew this was coming. Absolutely. Note the art surrounding Meadow on top of her contrapposto posing on the bed. A Picasso and a Richard Diebenkorn. Diebenkorn was an American abstract expressionist. He was a fan of Edward Hopper, as am I. Yes. And when you know this, you see some of that in his work, certainly in the color palettes, if nothing else. His paintings, like so many, once they're dead, now sell in the tens of millions. Ron, did you see any abundant intentionality putting a Picasso next to a Diebenkorn?
1: Next to the Diebenkorn, huh? I didn't think of it like that. I did I also did a deep dive on the Steven Corn here. So, so I'm not that familiar with this guy, but I do know that he is famous for his California landscapes. So, it's interesting that the first shot that we get of the Dean Corn is when Finn walks in talking about, you know, his parents bought him a ticket back to California. But that painting actually isn't a California landscape. It is, like you said, the name of that painting is actually uh, Girl with Plant. It's a figurative painting. It's not one of these abstract landscapes that he usually does. So if he actually does, uh, you know, use this ticket to go back to California, he's going to leave Meadow alone there, essentially Girl with Plant by herself. And it is, like you said, the Hopper... It looks like a hopper, you know, very desolate, lonely kind of girl, desolate figure, which which is what Meadow would end up being if uh, if if Still went back.
0: And isn't that also what we see in the Picasso? Yeah, a similar figure of a lonely, isolated woman.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And and that that figure, so that painting is actually called "Girl Girl Drawing in Front of a Mirror" or something like that. You can see the mirror there. And you see the, the woman not looking at the mirror. She's you know engrossed in her drawing. And that's such a nice way to think of Meadow in this episode, where she does no kind of self reflection. She does, just does not, she's not willing to look at herself in the mirror. There's a lot of self delusion going on with her in this episode.
0: Mm. And then she later runs into the bathroom. Interesting. Finn is dubious about the economy. Even the crappiest McJobs aren't there. That's interesting now when you contrast this with the attitudes and sort of rugged, individualistic, entrepreneurial spirit that we think of today. Everybody's saying that we're in an information economy now and you got to be your own boss and there's not going to be a job waiting for you when we get out of this pandemic. So it's a a great time capsule moment there for The Sopranos. Um, Right. Besides, he says, I wouldn't want to take away a job a minority could have. How does this line land for you? It amazes me that it simultaneously is three things. Racist, (laughs) entitled, and helpful at the same time, right?
1: I mean, there's definitely some entitlement and superiority there. You know, but ultimately, I think he's just full of shit, right? It's just a lame excuse. He just doesn't want to work this kind of crappy McJob. And so he kind of tries to hide it behind this noble sentiment, right? Mm. This episode is all about lame excuses and scapegoating, right? Very first scene, we see Tony Blondetto blaming his limp on a couple of black guys. And just throughout the episode, we see these kinds of lame excuses.
0: Meadow tries to fix the crapped-out AC. What is the meaning of this crapped-out AC, Ron? No air in the room, the imminent deflation of their relationship, antiquated thinking coinciding with an antiquated AC, something, anything. Ron?
1: It made me laugh. To me, it was almost like a, like a running gag throughout the whole, throughout the whole episode.
0: For me, it was the suitcase that was the running game. Which we'll get to. We see a shirtless guy and a moose on the TV. Or it's a reindeer, which to me immediately symbolized, like, when you're sitting in a room with no AC for a long enough time, you're going to start to see crazy shit like shirtless guys and mooses on TV. (laughs) Finn suggests, why not get out of the city? Says Meadow could go back to New Jersey and sleep in comfort. She takes it personally. Finn graduated, we learn, and going home would be a humiliation, which is a fair statement. I think a lot of people would agree with that. Last thing you want to do, especially when you graduate from a school like that. Right. Fanning himself helps give birth to a revelation. Maybe I should go back to LA, work as a PA, make some cash. You could come out for a week. Not exactly pro long term relationship sounding, is it? All <laughs> right. It's not what he wants, but at least he'd have money. That's his point. And then the show's point the almighty dollar. It's all about the motherfucking cocksucking money, right, Ron? Yeah, absolutely. And what has money been doing? It's been shunting long term planning and dreams since 1792. that was my tie back to old stuff Ah, gotcha Finn even talks himself into maybe pursuing photography someone who knows said his work was solidly unsentimental (laughs) Ron does that sound like something familiar to you
1: you know I think we can describe the Sopranos as solidly unsentimental usually this episode is a little bit different. It actually has a kind of soapy, soap opera feel to it, right? And a lot of it is because of this melodrama that's going on right now between Finn and, Car- and Meadow, but also what's going on between Carmella and Tony.
0: Mm. You have a very beautiful word choice in your write-up about sentimentality. I'm going to save it until we get there for the very end. Okay. But
1: you No, know, it's funny. I actually haven't read that write-up in a while.
0: Well, it's good. I read it about an hour and a half ago, so okay. it is fresh in my mind. Meadows pissed. She gave up junior year abroad so they could be together. Another wonderfully elegant entitled statement. Right. Okay. <laughs> They're all over the place. She says she could come out. He says, why not make it longer? Why not transfer to UCLA? Amazingly, she actually contemplates it, which is something a lot of young lovers have been through as well myself included. He changes the subject faster than a politician at a press conference, Ron. (laughs) Let's see a movie. But they can't even decide on that, which to me symbolized this whole thing was a house of cards. As are so many young relationships in the middle of uncertain crossroads, only thing unique about this one relative to the show, they can't blame their problems here on unidentified black males. Uh, Ah, what's your
1: take on Meadow? You know, a lot of people really hate her, but like you said, she's kind of just a young person, right?
0: She's totally a young person. I defend her this episode because you can throw all the sort of professionalism and education and you know, highfalutin statements and goals and aspirations and all of the qualities about her that are incredible and someone that would make her infinitely dateable, right? You'd totally want to be with a woman who's independent and powerful and smart. And you can throw that all out the window, figuratively speaking, when love is involved, right? In matters of the heart. So she gets a pass. They wrote her, they wrote her like a teenager whose boyfriend is putting up the Notion of potentially leaving or doing a long distance relationship, and I don't know about you, but anytime I was faced with the specter of a long distance relationship, I freaked the fuck out. yeah,
1: absolutely. you know th- this is that point in your life. they're at that point in your life where you're trying to figure out what you want to do for a living for the rest of your life, who you want to spend the rest of your life with, or at least what type of person you want to spend the rest of your life with. so you know those are difficult questions, so even you know, even the question of, like, what, what movie do you want to see tonight becomes difficult when you're kind of so self-absorbed and so caught up in, in all these bigger questions.
0: Absolutely. Cut from one indecisive couple situation to another indecisive couple situation. Carmela at home. A lawyer calls. Lee Neiman. Original attorney retired, we learn. She wants this guy to take his place to continue with the divorce proceedings, which is something I'm going to ask you about in a minute. Attorney explains he has to recuse himself, and she asks why, and we get a hard cut to a bear outside. Tony? Is it the same bear, I wonder, from earlier in the season, or was it a cousin? A Tony B. See what I did there? Tony B. Tony Bear. (laughs) Right. I warned you about the bad humor, okay? But I can't help myself. Attorney continues while sipping a ginger ale, which to me was loaded, stomachs churning for being a chicken, and for breaking some bad news to Carmela. Code of professional responsibility precludes him from repping her. I can accurately tell you that the code of professional responsibility does tell you that. But it also does tell you that you can catch that shit from a mile away and say, hey, look, I'm not going to have this conversation with you because I know what you're trying to do. So he could have told Tony, I can't talk to you because I know you've talked to every single other one of my friends and I know what you're trying to do. So the code of professional responsibility does encourage you to not be a dickwad. Oh,
1: okay. (laughs) I didn't even know that was a possibility,
0: see? Yeah, look, this is is where kind of like the writing could be informed, where Carmela's also wondering the same fucking thing she can't understand but i love how she says aloud the answer without realizing it my husband talked to seven or eight of the top divorce attorneys tony wright as you also mentioned in your write-up apparently took the advice of sapinsley back in white caps right which is a true tactic that i discussed in Whitecaps when i talked to orrin about it that's David Chase got the idea. He was hanging out here in LA and someone said something to him about how, you know, just talk to every lawyer and then the other side is fucked. And that is, in a nutshell, the business of practicing law if you do it at a no-holds-barred level. And I love that they reminded us of it again in this episode, right?
1: Beautiful symmetry. Yeah, actually, my neighbor works for a law firm and she told me that this kind of thing happens quite often. Like, people from the next county over come over to Dade County because all the attorneys over there in that county are polluted. There's this other interesting point about this attorney, right? So I looked him up. His name is uh, Sid Davikoff. So he's he's an actual attorney. He was actually a, uh, he's kind of well known, like in the area, like New Jersey, New York area. He was a fixer for one of the New York City mayors back in, I think, the 70s. So there's a kind of like real-life residue coming into this here where, you know, he's a real-life fixer for this for the mayor. Carmela is hoping that, she, that this guy can fix her problems, but
0: he can't. Love it. The lawyer salvages what he can, makes an uncontaminated recommendation, which is especially important right now that we get things that are uncontaminated Ron, and the bear scoots out of the frame. Great use in corporation and choice to bring back the bear there. It was a beautiful thing. Yeah. And expensive, too. Cut to the bing. Silvio's filling in the gang about what happened to Joey Peeps. Polly makes a joke. Then little Polly does. The jokes aren't important, Ron, because they both sucked, like mine. I think that was the point. But Polly is mad. That little Pauly always tries to top him. This is the first time we've seen this, right? Right, right. Think it comes from a deeply personal writer's room level. I don't know this for a fact, but it sounds like something you would say when you're in a room with a bunch of guys and women writing a show and you're topping each other on jokes. It sounds deeply personal and that's what makes it even better.
1: (laughs) This is something between, uh, who is it? Terry Winter and Matt Weiner.
0: You never know. I got to ask Terry if there were some lines that he wished he'd written, and he was like, "You're damn right, there are." So, uh, who's your top pick for ball breaker? Generally on the show, man. You
1: know, I I love how Karada turns a phrase, but he doesn't really break too many balls—at least not in person. Fair distinction. Yeah. So I I might go with Paulie. You know, when he throws out a zinger, even if it's not much of a zinger, he'll actually repeat it so it's like twice as nice.
0: <laughs> the repetition. He props it up. He <laughs> props it up by repeating it. Absolutely. But but
1: what about Blondetto too? And you know, the next episode is called called Cold Cuts. It's all about insults, right? And we really see Blondetto's talent in the next one.
0: Blondetto's my GOAT for breaking balls. <laughs> he was the day he came onto the show. Part of that is because he started, he didn't skip a beat, right? He came out of the can and he went right for the jugular of Tony Soprano. Right. So for me, it's Blundetto. And he only does it in, we're not going to spoil anything on the podcast, but yeah. you know he's only been on the show for eight episodes. And he's broken more balls in eight episodes than the 50 before it, which is quite a thing to say.
1: Oh man, one of my favorite characters.
0: Silvio says their crew will pitch in and contribute the headstone. Nice little placement there for something later. Yeah. Tony comes in, asks to talk to Tony B in private, like he did a couple of episodes back. Pauly gives a look like he feels excluded. Just the look was enough, right, Ron? Absolutely. Tony busting out of the Bing side door. Another shot we've seen before. Symmetry. Right. Tony says they got an ID on the guy that did Joey Peeps. Guy had a limp. Tony B's line again, goes back to his goat stature, is perfect. Long John Silver, maybe. A literary reference from Treasure Island, but also probably most known for being the figurehead of a once popular fast food seafood joint. (laughs) Given Tony B's IQ, Ron, he could have been referring to either or both at the same time,
1: right? Oh, absolutely. He's quick, too. Doesn't miss a beat.
0: When was the last time you ate at Long John Silver's? Don't lie. Oh my god. It's probably like eight, eight late 80s. I had it in the 90s. It's still going strong. I looked them up too. I thought they were out of business, but no, there are Long John Silver's like scattered around this country. It's incredible.
1: Yeah, I've seen them around, but not down here.
0: I never thought like if you were to pitch me, if I was an investor and you were to come to me and say fast food Seafood? I would have said no, thank you. <laughs> like what? The whole point, the whole premise of seafood—that's not fried, obviously—is fresh. That's the whole the the word fresh and the word seafood are like are like two peas in a pod. Best exchange. I am bending over backwards trying to stay neutral, paying for fucking car seats, and you're out there acting like a fucking free agent. Don't look at me like I'm a fucking jerk off. To which I wrote, 2019 Kawhi Leonard over here. Tony brings up the hijack thing again. The guilt is all-encompassing, right? It's become a great connective tissue for their relationship and our being able to find an anchor in it. Not unlike Long John Silver's ship when it hit upon a trove of shrimp. (laughs) Well put. T-Softens. The oscillation of Tony Soprano gets us, especially you and me, every time, even though we know it's ephemeral. He knows about Tony B's 158 IQ. How high is that, I wondered? Is it Mensa level? Turns out, it's way above Mensa level. Really? Brains. And balls. If he could just stay straight, he could use all that. Tony recognizes Tony B as a goodwill hunting code breaker in his ranks. But he's just not savvy enough yet to harness that. Or, Ron, do you think he does know how powerful Tony B is and just doesn't want to get eclipsed by him? You know, the 48 laws of power thing. Rule number one. Never outshine the master. Is Tony that deep right now? Or is that too much of
1: a reach? No, I think that's definitely possible. It's all about power for Tony, right? And, and again, that whole masculinity thing, right? We saw in the restaurant with, with Finn where Tony had to be the alpha male. Yeah. you know, it, It's definitely possible that he's trying to keep his foot on uh, TB's neck here.
0: That's what I was looking. I believe it, because no matter what, I do think he does see all the permutations at internet speed, and he does recognize that a guy that's a Mensa member, all but, if not officially, this guy could have a plan hatching to remove me from power. If you want to extend the political metaphor here? Sure. It's possible. Tony B says, put me in, coach. <laughs> Jordan over here. On a minute and you'll get this because you watched. Yeah. Jordan over here on a minutes restriction in year two after coming off the foot injury. That that was
1: insane. There was 14 seconds left in that one game, and they would not put him in. And I think who was it? I think John Paxton had to bail them out or something.
0: And that was a lucky shot. I mean, John Paxton didn't say it was lucky, but the way he looked on camera when he described it, he's like, look. Ridiculous. It's safe to say that the guys running the Bulls that were making that decision with 14 seconds to go did not have an IQ of 158. <laughs> but they did have money on their mind. They did have economics on That's their mind. What That's what all about. Sure. Tony gives them a casino on Bloomfield Avenue. From where do you get the balls to... I'll see about getting you straightened out. Ron, how did Tony B outmaneuver Tony without saying a word?
1: That 158 IQ, that was just a brilliant little conversation there.
0: Sometimes the best thing to say is nothing at all. Yeah. I wonder if that's in the IQ handbook. <laughs> Definitely in the 48 laws of power. So, cut from Tony going through a mood oscillation that's my word of the day that defies the laws of physics to him processing it in Melfi's office put a very good piece of manpower to work he says right there's that chess sort of vibe coming back he repeats himself but she's over it as she has become recently do you put a lot of stock into that number why you gonna tell me it's bullshit if you read that on paper Ron it's flat on the page but the way this is one of those examples of acting at work here the way she delivers it is beautiful and the space that she gives or that the director gives around that phrase to let us sort of jump into the pool with her so to speak it is wonderful and then we get tony's shirt where's he going after this ron ralphie's bowling club <laughs> They are missing a guy. Right. They are short one person. Uh, He's short with her. Possibly because she was short with him. He's no gabadots after all.
1: Gabadots. That's a new word, right?
0: Translates to hardhead.
1: That's a nice word.
0: But that's what he's being. It is a new word, but he's being exactly what he's saying he's not, which is the funny part of it. Right
1: it's interesting how he keeps bringing up the, the IQ thing. Yeah. You know, because to me, it's almost like it's part of his penance that he seems to be interested in performing here. Like he obviously feels guilty about what happened uh, to Tony B 17 years ago, as we'll find out at the end of the episode. And, you know, kind of, and constantly talking about how smart he is, the one fifty eight IQ and everything. It's a way of kind of building him up, like doing mm. penance. Making him look better as a better leader? Just making him look, uh, you know, I think Tony just feels bad about what happened 17 years ago. So he's kind of trying to just make up for it in whatever way he can.
0: Yeah, what kind of bad he feels, though, is something that we need to reconcile as we go through this. You know, yeah, it's a, absolutely. It, it is very complicated. That's all we can really say at this point.
1: Yeah.
0: We get this great line. Tony's proud of putting manpower to work, to your theme that you beautifully stated at the beginning, it can kind of help weave through this masculinity. He says, Carmella and I slept together, matter-of-factly. And then Melfi gets round two of, like, some of the best dialogues of her tenure as Dr. Melfi.
1: What was that like? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which can mean so many different things, right. besides the obvious. And Tony took it as, well, she wants to know how I perform. But it meant it meant something completely different than that from my vantage point, and I think yours as well.
1: <laughs> what well, do you think? Uh, Melty's
0: a little bit starved for it. No, I think she's trying to mock Tony right there. Oh. Like, you know, and he's he's thinking, oh, she wants to she wants to hear about pillow talk. Right. But I think she's kind of like, she's kind of grossed out by him in a way, not overtly, but definitely in the delivery of that line. Yeah. I'm with you. Spare me is kind of where she's at. But Tony thinks the opposite. And he says the poor thing was starved for it. (laughs) Great cut to Melfi's face, of course, the obligatory cut to Melfi's face. Which is the obligatory cut, basically the camera turning around and looking at us, the viewer, for a minute. That's what that is right there. He says, I'm the only man she's ever been with. If he only knew. Right, Ron?
1: Absolutely. Wegler. So, you know, there was an interesting theory at the time when this uh, episode originally aired. I think I saw it on one of the forums, which was that In Camelot, there was a flashback, right, to Livia having a change-of-life baby, and she lost that baby. So people were kind of predicting that where the season was going to go from here was that maybe Carmella's going to get pregnant by Wegler. Maybe she is pregnant right now, but because Tony slept with her in the last episode, Tony's going to think that the baby is his it's a very kind of soapy soap opera kind of storyline. And it kind of speaks to like the soap opera quality of, of this episode.
0: 100%. And I remember reading that once upon a time, but again, without saying too much, like that doesn't necessarily pan out.
1: Yeah. That's not really the Sopranos aesthetic, right?
0: Right. Yes. It would be, it would be beneath David Chase to do that. Yeah. Unless he did it in a, murderous fashion which and what I mean by that is to annihilate that trope and basically say you come at me with that trope this trope is officially dead in this medium he
1: finds some way to take this conventional storyline and make it unconventional
0: then Tony takes a call in therapy Melfi scoffs big faux pas taking calls in therapy in any professional setting point here is he disrespects two women, who are very close to him, in a single scene? Oscillations are happening everywhere.
1: Yeah, it's a great point. You know, he actually—it's—it's it's again going back to like how he's taking things for granted, right? He—he—he he, he took it for granted that he's going to get back with Carmela. Now he's taking it for granted that he can just kind of take a call with Melfi. Like he thinks he can do whatever he wants and get whatever he wants. Nevertheless. From Nelsie, from Carmella.
0: Cut to Carmella with another lawyer. A gal walks into a lawyer's office over here. <laughs> nice blinds, by the way. He is definitely not the person I want to spend the rest of my life with. Has she ever sounded more assured to you? I don't know. That's a bold statement. I don't know. Do you believe her? I don't believe her, but what a thing to say. Right. What a thing to say. And it kind of actually gives you a little ammunition if you're still wondering, like me at this point, like, wait a minute, didn't we just see Marco Polo? Didn't they just hook up? Why is she going so aggressively for this? This right here kind of doesn't settle your stomach, but it gives you a visual or verbal realization that, man, she actually is going through with this and she's making these profound blanket statements to complete strangers.
1: Yeah, and it actually connects to you know the the previous scene where tony was taking things for granted right he took melfia for granted and i think carmela feels like she's being taken for granted here and i think that's why she's still continuing these uh to pursue the divorce
0: she's concerned about the unreported income getting her cut of that she talks about the carding business and connects it to cash this never made sense to me the nexus between the garbage business and cash. What am I missing?
1: I don't think you're missing anything. I think, I think Carmel's full of shit again, you know, again, this whole making excuses thing, right? There really is no connection. There's no reason why the carding business should be a cash business, but she's just trying to find some way to justify why they have so much cash to this, to this attorney.
0: Lawyer tells a story about hiring a forensic accountant to reconstruct finances. Says it can reveal Scrooge McDuck money. Okay? That gets her eyeballs to start spinning in place. Cut from financial security, Ron, to the financially insecure. Finn. All right. Snoozing to baseball on the couch. Cue the music. Hope you're not a baseball fan. Baseball, what is it good for? Absolutely, that napping. Oh, oof, my lord. His day, we learn, consisted of dropping off an application at a movie theater. He could have done that in Mission Viejo, though. Right. Meadow says her dad got Finn a job working construction in Jersey. No experience needed. Pays twenty. Bucks an hour. Great fin line. Might even be my cold open. How's that even possible? No show, no work. Right, Ron? Absolutely. And again, we see how
1: out of his depth he is, right? He we know how that's possible. Meadow knows how that's possible, but Finn doesn't.
0: You think Meadow does? You think Meadow understands the intricacies of union manipulation? Maybe not the ins and
1: outs, but you know, 20 bucks an hour at that time, I think was like four
0: or five times uh,
1: what you would get at a McJob.
0: Ron, 20 bucks an hour today is still real money. Yeah, it is. Today in 2020, it is, it is. People are fighting about the minimum wage being 15 bucks an hour.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Meadow knows that something's now kosher about this, this job offer, right?
0: But she defends it. And that's, that's one of the things that I love about Meadow is you come at her, you come at her family, but she'll take you out. That's a great sort of uh, mountain, if you will, that David Jace created for Meadow early. And they kept her on that mountain through this series. Right. She is like the St. Peter, if you will, of the Soprano family. If you want to cross through, you got to talk to me at the pearly gates. Or in this <laughs> case, you know, the driveway up to the door. Cut to Finn working at a job site. The job site. That was fast, Ron. What about his process?
1: I figured that's part of the whole Tony Soprano expediting process.
0: Well, that was my bad joke, though. His process, right? He has to deliberate over things. He didn't deliberate about this. (laughs) The process. The fact that it flew over your head is actually a good sign that these jokes are god-awful, but I just can't help myself.
1: Keep
0: on coming. The crew is sitting and baking in the sun. Adjacent heat follows us through this episode. Right. Right. This job site was in real life was in Clifton, around three sixty one Lexington Avenue. It's a school now. Uh Vito's complaining about the Blue Jays, Toronto Blue Jays. Vito's fan. We get to see. (laughs) It's a character prop. Ron as impactful here. I'd argue. As Elliot's water bottle.
1: Oh man, and maybe even funnier, it's such a fantastic sight gag.
0: Yes. Finn chimes in from afar. I think that was a mistake of his. I think he should have kept in his lane, if you will. He invited what happens to him, I would argue. Uh, says Burrell got shelled. That's some baseball reference. And I. If I cared enough, I would have looked, but I didn't, so I don't know who Burrell is. Could be Pat Burrell. I'm just throwing that out there there because it sounds right. Uh, The gang is pissed because that means he's a Mets fan as opposed to the Yankees. But Finn corrects them. He's a Padres fan. Vito tells him to stick with the Angels. Pods haven't had a team in 20 years. 20 fucking years, Ron. Finn corrects him. First mistake on the Draw Unnecessary Attention to Vito meter. They were in the series in 1998. The Yankees swept him. And as a Yankees fan, Vito should have known that. Ah. Uh. You know? Uh, Polly comes over and calls Finn Shaggy from Scooby-Doo, which I know you love. <laughs> Tells him to clean his tires. Why did that get you?
1: It's so, it's so accurate, Right. You know, again, it's that generic quality, right? He he really does look like Shaggy
0: here. Great soundbite. Go! Before it sets in the treads! I love that turn of phrase. I have used that turn of phrase on every road trip I have ever taken. I have found a way to incorporate. Gotta do this before it sets in the treads. Nobody knows what the hell I'm talking about, except... (laughs) for you and the listeners of this insane podcast. Um the guys tell Polly that's Meadow's boyfriend. He was just ordering around. And we get a great sunken jaw Polly face. It's an all-time look for oh, him. Yeah. He walks over, gives him a chunk of change, masculinity to your point. Puts little Polly on the job. Take that for one upping my jokes you protege fuck
1: what i love about the dog
0: shit on the car
1: dog shit's sort of becoming like a kind of like a shorthand in soprano world for masculinity because we remember earlier this season tony actually scraped some dog shit off his shoe with a stick and handed it to christopher to throw away and he was kind of asserting his power over christopher in that episode Right? And we see that here also a little bit. You know, like you say, Paulie kind of asserting his power over little Polly.
0: Absolutely. Finn holds the money and kind of sighs. Is he regretting taking the job? Regretting getting involved with Meadow? Or regretting waiting on dental school?
1: I don't know. I, I felt like it was kind of just like first aid jitters. You know, you kind of always regret taking a job on your first day sometimes. Yeah. I don't know. What, what did you think? Did you have more on that?
0: I think this is an important thing to your write-up at the end about Carmella, Carmella going through divorce in the process of it contrasted or juxtaposed with Finn getting into the Soprano family. So one person's exiting the Soprano family, another person's entering it. And there's nothing to take away from this particular scene right here in in a vacuum. But knowing what we know going forward, it's sort of prescient. There's an ominousness to it. Like, like, it could be as simple as, what the fuck am I doing? Working at a job site with a Columbia degree. But if you really want to climb the stair-step ladder, it could be like, what am I getting myself into with a... Daughter of a mob boss. Yeah, kind of yeah so, I can see that. The beauty of the show is that we'll never know, but we can always talk about it till we have gray beards. Um, okay. Cut to Tony and Carmela at lunch. He greets her with a kiss. She's taken aback. She comes out with it. She's asking for divorce. Again, I'm going to come back to this. Why? After what happened with Marco Polo, why the sudden change of heart? There has to be something more than just seeing Tony put the Escalade in reverse.
1: She's up two minds here, right? I think there's a parallel between Carmela and Meadow where Meadow really doesn't know how to go forward, what she wants. And Carmela is very much in the same kind of uh, state of mind. Hmm. But I think a lot of it also has to do with the Escalade backing out of the driveway. I think... I think history could have changed, or at least this episode could have changed if Tony had just simply come into the house right there.
0: The camel's back, you're saying, was that fragile?
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Artie, ever the sight for comic relief. <laughs> I hope you brought your appetite. Always comedy and drama, Ron, in the same breath of The Sopranos. Definitely. Tony goes Jerry Maguire on her. Invite me to a public space so you can ambush me. Love that. Yeah. Love that connectivity. If it was there, Artie comes back. Go stand over there. He says,
1: right. And and I love the way that Artie actually walks away. Like yes, you know he doesn't have a tail, but you see him walking away with the tail between his legs. Right. He's one beautiful. He's one of the great physical. Actors on the show, like his little gestures and his facial expressions. He he just saw it in this episode, in this scene.
0: The principal concern, surprise, surprise, is money. Tony brings up the bird feed again. Again, last time we heard that was white caps. Wow. Great exchange. I'll play most of this. Carmela says, You want this to get ugly, Tony? Because these guys live for that. Always wondered, doesn't she know her audience right there? (laughs) Tony's murderous crossover retort.
1: Oh, you think I don't?
0: Love that line. It's so powerful. I want what I'm entitled to. You're entitled to shit. She's ready to order. And then to your point about already walking off like a dog, Tony walks off like a Rottweiler that just found his kill and then he says she's ready to order. It's a beautiful vignette. The whole thing was just artfully created from dialogue to the presentation of the scene and to the physical acting that you just described.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, Tony's line here, you're entitled to shit. To me, it was, I don't know if it was a purposeful callback, but it reminded me of uh, Polly a couple episodes ago, like earlier in the season. Feach says something like, uh, "You know, I just got out of the joint, which which entitles me to earn." And Paulie responds, "Which entitles you to shit." And it's kind of a feach. Yeah, he he told Feach, "You're entitled to shit." So it's kind of a parallel situation where, you know, you have Carmela and Feach believe that they're entitled to a piece of this, you know, this illegal, this like ill-gotten pie. Mm. And you have Tony and Polly, who are angry at them for believing that they're entitled, but at the same time, they themselves feel like they're entitled to this kind of ill-gotten
0: pie. 100%. Love the connection. Cut back to Finn. Schmoozing with the office girl. Felicia on the job site. I like your connection to Felicio. Okay? Subtle. (laughs) Another blowjob pun. He's talking about Meadow. She zigs, I zag. Girl says Tony always flirts. Then cue Cisco and thong song. Finn steals a peek. Then she goes Beyonce. Yes, I just connected Cisco and Beyonce in the same sentence. Then she goes Beyonce and talks about the importance of putting a ring on it as opposed to just cohabiting space together. You can just up and leave, is her point, which is prescient for what we're about to see. Right,
1: and I love, when we cut to this scene, the first thing that, that Finn is saying is, I zig and she zags. And it's such an interesting juxtaposition from the previous scene, from Vesuvio, where we saw Tony and Carmela, you know, one of them zigging, the other one zagging, kind of going in opposite directions.
0: Yes, absolutely. Vito begins the first of his many awkward insertions. No pun intended. Okay. Phineas, my boy. Ron, there are so many Phineas references out there. Do you know which one exactly he's referring to here?
1: I have no idea.
0: There's some cartoon, right? I don't know. But it happened after. The cartoon existed after the show Yeah, that's true. Vito's not done. Next says Finn looks like Joe Perry, which is about as accurate as you can get.
1: Oh man, I love Joe Perry.
0: I love me some Aerosmith man. Yeah. Vito asks the girl if her can you play any uh Aerosmith on the guitar? Yeah, I can do uh
1: some of the 70s stuff, Sweet Emotion and uh
0: You know what? I'm not kidding. If you record a clip, I will make the clip the cold open to this episode. <laughs>
1: I gotta see if I can. No my, pressure. No pressure. Well, I gotta see if I can get my amp to work. I I could maybe try it on my acoustic, but
0: whatever. If you can do it, no pressure. That would be fun. You have like five, seven days. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna crank this out this weekend. I was gonna usually get episodes out on Sunday, uh-huh. but I'm like woefully behind on other stuff. So you have a few days if you want to, but no pressure. All right, I'll, I'll give it a try. Your choice, your pick on the Aerosmith tune. Okay. Vito asks the girl if her boss is inside. Ron. That's not a throwaway line. He's going inside for a reason, is my point. Ah, okay. Rendezvous, if you will, Rest. which we'll get to. Finn flirts with the girl, asks if she's dating anybody. Nice little cute smile. And then we cut to, it's too easy, Meadow. Right. Shopping with Carmela. Carmela puts her personal money problem on Meadow. Wondered what her agenda was there putting your problems on your kids. It's not something that usually happens. You know what I mean? Yeah,
1: I wonder if she's just venting or maybe she's just trying to make Tony look bad.
0: Making Tony look bad. There you go. Something that my mother did to my father. Always tried to make him look bad. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? It was too personal for me to see it. That's why I needed you to articulate it. Thank you. (laughs) Then she lies about Tony at Hugh's party. Says he went home with Artie. This was a Tony move, Ron. I mentioned this earlier, right? She's almost as effortless being Tony as Tony himself.
1: Man, it's too bad that we don't have women bosses in this country because she she set the bill. A
0: woman boss. A woman boss. She tells Meadow she's going forward with the divorce. Horrible music is playing in the background. Wonder if that was the point.
1: I actually looked up the music here. So the name of the track is called "Get Fucked." <laughs> Which is such a, a brilliant, you know, when you consider that the last scene ended with Finn flirting with Felicia and then you cut to this, you know, you're kind of seeing Meadow get fucked. Yes. And we're listening to Carmela talk about how she's getting fucked by Tony. He, he stopped paying her credit card bills.
0: Again, my point. Horrible music. That was the point. And the language is even more on point. Even the smallest detail, Ron, of a mom and daughter shopping at a Benetton, United Colors of Benetton, <laughs> has musical intentionality. It's a thing of beauty. intentionality, yeah. Meadow isn't exactly sympathetic, but goes Nicholas Nassim Taleb on Karm and preaches the importance of options. Have you ever read any of his books, by the way? No, I'm not familiar. I've talked a lot about him. I highly recommend him. He wrote a book called The Black Swan. He wrote another book called Anti-Fragile. And Anti-Fragile is especially useful, accurate, prescient for what we're going through right now. So um, I've quoted him on the podcast at least three times. I would love to obviously talk to him. I don't think I'll ever get a chance to. But check out Anti-Fragile and uh, let me know what you think. Yeah, definitely
1: check it out.
0: He talks about optionality. And optionality is what this episode is concerned with on a fundamental level. Carmela says you have options, I have a lawyer, which is a great line.
1: One of the great lines, and I think it really is important in the final scene.
0: Yes. Yes. Nice connection. Cut to Phil Leotardo pulling up to the job site. Note the new wingman, Ron. It's Billy Leotardo, <laughs> right. his brother. Vito says these New York guys are here for the New Jersey Tomatoes this time of year. New Jersey Tomatoes? It's true. They're known for being the best in the nation for their flavor, tenderness, and juiciness. Wow,
1: really? It is? Yeah. Jersey is the garden state.
0: It's the garden state. But it is also the most densely populated per capita. Where the fuck are they making these tomatoes? (laughs) South Jersey. Billy sells toner cartridges out of his trunk. I love (laughs) this visual. It's a great turn of phrase, right, Ron? And will come back to us at a very special moment in the show down the line. Um, but it is a true slice of life, if you will, for what these guys are all about and what they do and how they earn a living.
1: Yeah, it's so small time, and that's a nice little bit of connectivity you figured out there.
0: Okay. Guys are breaking balls. We talked about breaking balls earlier. Yeah. Pontecorvo and Little Polly take things a little too far or do they was it just because it was a gay joke ron had it been anything else would little Polly have left the job site unscathed
1: i think yeah you know i think there's a kind of gay panic sort of theme going on in this episode right it's connected to the whole masculinity thing that it's a kind of questioning of gene Pontecorvo's masculinity
0: your masculinity theme is right on point. I just, you can go as far as you want to, but as soon as you bring up masculinity, that's when shit hits the fan. Exactly. Fair? That's
1: exactly it. And that's the thing that's beyond the pale.
0: And little Polly here does just that. Pontecorvo inflicts significant damage on him. Finn pukes. Cut to Finn at home, explaining what he saw to Meadow. Finn starts to make insinuations about Meadow's background and past. That's where the Jackie Jr. reference comes in about the black guys. She turns on the criminal defense cross-examination mode, as she always does, like we discussed, whenever anyone touches her family, right? Good point, yeah. Then, we're dropping literary references left and right here. You can't drop Shakespeare without expecting me to come back with Howard Zinn. She drops Howard Zinn, People's History of the United States over here, which we tie back to the Goodwill Hunting reference moments ago. We are just dropping dimes all over the place, Soprano's autopsy. Old modes of conflict resolution is her line. Ron, my point here, Meadow is peak Columbia right now.
1: She's peak Columbia and she's also full of shit, right? This is another, <laughs> another lame excuse, right? It it may be true that the development of the mafia was connected to, you know, poverty of Mezzo Giorno or whatever, but right now she's just trying to find a justification for her family's lifestyle, right? That's what this whole episode is about. It's people just trying to make excuses so that they don't have to confront the truth, and especially the truth about themselves.
0: Two themes that are sticking out like sore thumbs that you've articulated. Masculinity and shit. And it's all connected and it's wonderful. <laughs> Fade cut to a funeral. Joey Peeps'. Is. This is the most action Joey Peeps has gotten in the whole show. The headstone says Peeps. It's a fucking nickname. Sill says they're gonna redo it. <laughs> Christopher's got somewhere else to be, checking his watch, and it starts raining. John is livid about the headstone. Tony says he'll fix it. John could give a fuck about that. Says his cousin was spotted on the Upper West Side the same night Peeps was killed. Why is Johnny Sack so convinced it was Tony Blundetto?
1: So, I, I don't know. You know, I think we were talking about this before. I don't know if he is so convinced. I don't know if it's... He's just trying to bluff a little bit. What's the button you called? Uh, the trope is a uh, berserk button. His
0: berserk button. Yeah. Yes, this is more of that. I think. Yeah, it could be. It could be that. Yeah. By the way, uh-huh. he mentions the Upper West Side, uh-huh. but the actual location of the shooting—we talked about it last episode—was on the Upper East Side. So that doesn't mean anything. I'm just, for the purpose of being a completist, I'm putting that uh-huh. out there.
1: You know, the, the other thing about Johnny Sack here. He might be just looking to uh, to escalate this war in New York because he knows he's got a better team, right? He's got Phil Leotardo. Yeah. Right? Whereas Lil Carmine has got mayor of Munchkinland, Rusty Milio, and Angelo Gareppe, who's really kind of more leaning towards diplomacy right now, right? If this actually goes nuclear, Johnny Sack
0: is in a better position. Beautiful point. He's trying to instigate.
1: Yeah. and. The other thing about this scene that I love, like if we're if we're talking about bullshit lame excuses, yeah, Silvio says uh, Jason's dyslexic, and that's yeah. why. <laughs> what does that got to do with anything? Exactly. <laughs> Maybe the funniest lame excuse of the episode.
0: Tony and John go talk in the car, and reluctantly have drinks. They're not day drinkers. All the, which I think a lot of people are right now, I so it's I kind am of right funny. Now. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, if I didn't have to drive home, I would be day drinking right now, too. Luckily, I am at home. All the guys stand out in the rain and wait. Don't they have someplace else to be? <laughs> Wasn't that awkward to you? You're talking about masculinity, right, Ron? These guys are all standing idly by in the rain, looking like jerk-offs, oh, Joe jerk-offs, while Tony and, uh, and Johnny Sacker, but while men are talking, to quote Lorraine <laughs> Caluto, rest in peace. And and this funny little
1: conversation between Sill and Phil.
0: Yeah. You
1: know, very much a regularness of life right there.
0: Tony insists Tony B was with him the night Peeps died. thought this was a little unnecessary. Just overcomplicating what could have probably passed with less information. The more information you put yeah. into a lie, you know what I mean? The more it can blow up in your face, so to speak, like a can of worms. Definitely. Uh, says they were looking for his daughter. They mentions Monticello, upstate. And then Johnny Sack says, "Like, if I find out you're lying to me, I think Tony gave him enough ammunition to find out he was lying to him. That's kind of my point. Right, exactly. Wasn't very Tony Soprano.
1: So, you know, Emily Vanderwerf, the TV critic, has a kind of interesting
0: take on this. Used to be Todd yeah, to be Vanderwerf, Todd. right? And he became a she? Exactly.
1: So the fact that Tony uses... So again, this is another sort of lame excuse, right? Tony's making this lame excuse, this lame alibi for for Tony Blondetto. But the reason why, according to, to Vanderwerf, that he brings up uh, the missing daughter is again this sort of guilt, right? Tony's feeling guilt that... Tony Blondetto's daughter got, went missing while he was in prison. So it's very close to the surface of his thoughts. So when he has to come up with an alibi, all
0: of a sudden that's what he comes up with. Both of them lock eyes on Tony B. Before we cut back to Finn toiling away. Men at work over here. Cue the music. <laughs> the guys ask Finn his opinion. If they fought today, who you got? Ali or Tyson? Finn's worried about his boss, Ramos, and potentially worried about saying the wrong thing and getting pontecorvo Um, Who you got, Ron? Ali or Tyson?
1: Ali or Tyson? So figuring that uh, Tyson doesn't bite Ali's ear off? Right. If it goes the distance, you gotta go with Ali. But if if Iron Mike is able to line him up for a power punch, I think it's good night Muhammad Ali.
0: So early rounds favor Tyson, the longer the fight goes, you're putting your money on Ali. I think so, what do you think? I'll take that bet too. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Uh there's a nice interview with the two of them when Iron Mike was in his prime and um they were both asked the question and both of them gave diplomatic Angelo Goreppe answers. Oh yeah. Ali was like, oh, you know, if, if he got one of his punches on me, I'd be laid flat. And, and Tyson said, you know, I'm, he was young. Tyson was super young. He's like, look, I'm confident in myself and I'm, you know, I know my potential, but this is the greatest. And so it was a very, it was a very nice exchange between the two of them. But um, I think what you said is what I would go with if I was a betting man.
1: Wow, it's hard to imagine uh, Tyson that young and, and that humble.
0: Yeah. You know, the thing about Tyson that's interesting is his physical manifestations of his violence and sort of the the ear biting that you described is one side of Tyson, but the other side of Tyson are his verbal communications and interviews and even his, some of his writings. He's a thoughtful, introspective, uh, he's a sad clown, dare I say it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The Joe Rogan interview is one of the more interesting ones.
0: Yeah for sure. No. And, uh, he has his own podcast too. I don't know if you've listened to it, but he had, uh, he had Sugar Ray on and the first 15 minutes of it are basically, it's not listenable to most people, but if you have any interest in Mike Tyson, it'll actually give you a lot of context in what to what I just said. He's weeping to, to Sugar Ray kind of explaining his importance in his life. And they were talking about customato and, uh-huh. and it's, it's this he's a paradox, man. And that's, what's so fascinating about him. Absolutely. Um, Sweet science, yeah. as Mike Tyson is. Yeah. If Vito assures him, Finn, that is, uh-huh. that Ramos is under his spell. I mean, I mean, that he's got Ramos under control. Ron <laughs> Finn acquiesces and chills with the gang, and I got to do this. Joe Cool and the gang over here. <laughs>
1: Madonna mia.
0: <laughs> joe from the joe perry you see that i, I know you saw got that it. <laughs> yeah okay cut to a now familiar sight certainly building to something a pissed chris complaining about tony and smashing things around in his apartment i can multitask adrian i'm not a fucking retard it's always some shit with him side deals secret promises he's always got an agenda He's always got an agenda which Ron is rich coming from Chris. Right. Wanting to be out in the pilot sell screenplays and always sort of having one foot out the door seeking greener pastures and like any employee who's an underling complaining about his superior every which way every chance he gets.
1: Yeah. This this little scene, I think this is Christopher's only scene, and to me it's fascinating, right? Because he's obviously angry about Tony Blondetto, you know, kind of replacing him as number one cousin. So, like you said, you know, Christopher Christopher is always interested in the screenplays and you know, he, he wants an audience. And mm. so now, you know, ever since he ostensibly chose the mob instead of his Hollywood dreams. Tony has Tony Soprano has been the eyes on him. That's been his audience. And now Blondetta comes along and kind of pushes him out of the limelight. So I, I think that's what's kind of going on. It's, it's not simply just that he's, you know, being bumped down a little bit on the hierarchy. I think it's kind of that, psych, that psychology of Christopher there.
0: Mm. Where's my audience now?
1: Right. Did you think that uh, Christopher was maybe jonesing here in this in
0: this little scene here? Oh, he's been... When he was looking at his watch, he's been jonesing ever since he got out of rehab. Rehab didn't do shit yeah. for him.
1: Yeah,
0: And also, like, the the sort of... We look at Christopher when he does the intervention and he calls everybody else on their shit. And I kind of, like, empowered him when we talked about it on the podcast. Like, that was a great Chris moment. But now when you come full circle you realize that he's just as much of a hypocrite as they are. And he does as ridiculous and as ludicrous things. He cheats on Adriana. He does all the things that all these other people are doing. His hypocrisy, sort of the overarching point here, comes full circle, especially when he's talking about side deals and secret promises and this agenda. He has the biggest agenda, one of the biggest agenda. That he's not able to act on it and that he doesn't have an audience for it to your beautiful choice of the word is besides the point. Right. Cut from one crybaby, Ron, to another, (laughs) San Severino's daughter. Kindly remember about interrupting to ask for things while I'm on the telephone, which is super relatable, especially now for anyone around kids during this pandemic reality. And I just got a witness of it on your end. Someone just walked in (laughs) while you were on the telephone, proverbially speaking. It's classic. Kids will be kids. Adriana called. It was about nothing. And that's interesting because it leaves you with that sort of like, where's that going or what's going to happen next? Is something going to happen? It's a very easy red herring.
1: Right, yeah. I, you know, it, it's so interesting. Like, the scene is only a couple of seconds long, right? We only see Adriana for a couple of seconds. But that's really enough to, to just remind us that, that that FBI have this Trojan horse within the gates of the mafia, right? Yes. And that's, you know, not to give away any spoilers, but of course that's going to be developed as the season progresses. You know, and there's, you know, and there's so many multiple references to the FBI's Trojan horse in those couple of seconds. You have the, the painting of the eye on the wall, which kind of seems to signify how the FBI have their eyes on, on the mob. And also there's also a little desk lamp in the foreground, which kind of harkens back to, Season three, the, the
0: Bugged uh, FBI desk lamp. Nice catch. <laughs> Cut to Finn at the beach. Karate Kid over here, Ron. <laughs> tropes on tropes on tropes this episode. The background music is reminiscent of something we've heard before. Did you happen to find it?
1: Are you thinking about the, the uh, song that Fury, that, uh, Fury and Carmelo dance to?
0: It's not that song. It's something else, though. It comes from someplace else, right? It's not the first time we've heard that. Uh-huh. Finn's cohorts are talking about film school. Finn gives a look like he'd actually consider that, too. He's that all over the place right, right now, is kind of the point. Yeah. He decides to sleep at the job site rather than go home, to which I always wondered, time is of the essence all of a sudden? this guy <laughs> Finn rolls up in a Mustang convertible, not bad, also very California
1: It's very California, but it's also ironic, right because this is this is Meadows Mustang convertible. We saw it in- It's Meadows. yeah, we saw it. In, I think in the season opener we saw her driving it.
0: Oh so he's driving his girlfriend's car. This changes everything for me now. <laughs> I just assumed it was his. No, I'm pretty sure it's hers. She does have to- Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm with you. 100%. She picks up AJ and they go to Genesis for Sunday dinner. Right, yeah. So this is actually
1: really kind of significant, I think. So at the beach, right? At the beach I'm trying to get this right now. Finn wanted to leave and then Meadow actually didn't want him to leave and said something, but then when Finn when Finn mentioned Felicia, Meadow was like, okay, you should just leave now, right? So it was actually her words that actually got Finn to to leave the beach. And it's because of what she said that caused him to arrive early at the job site, which, you know, is, is really consequential that he arrived early. He's also driving her convertible, which allows Vito and the security guard, to see Finn. Like, he can't pretend that he didn't see what's going on because he's in a convertible.
0: Also, listen, Meadow says it to him directly, I'll get a ride with whoever the friend is. She says that in the scene, which implies that he would be taking her car, therefore she wouldn't be able to get home if she didn't have a ride. Oh, that's right, exactly. So, it just in reinforces your whole thinking of it anyway. So, Finn is driving his girlfriend's car to the job site. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so- I was thinking this whole time that he's a rich kid from Mission Viejo <laughs> and he's complaining about no economic relief from his parents whilst he drives a convertible Mustang around the tri state area. But I can't say that anymore.
1: No, no, he's driving his uh, entitled princess girlfriend's
0: car. As he parks, Finn sees what he sees. Right. It's also funny now that you mention it's her car because he parks, but he drives it all the way up to the curb. You hear it hit the curb. Ramos, the boss, doesn't even try to cover it up. No pun intended, Ron. (laughs) The sound of Finn's door chime increases the awkwardness of the scene by an order of magnitude. Did you feel that too? Oh
1: yeah, absolutely
0: because it's like when you see some when you show up someplace where you're not supposed to be, you kind of want to do this and you want to get out of there. And the the chime just exacerbates the fact that you're right fucking there.
1: Yeah, he kind of like tries to turn his head and it's just such an awkward moment.
0: Cut to later in the day on the job site. Close-ups on the porta-potties. Mr. John. What a great name for a company <laughs> like that. I mean, like, honestly, the, the, that alone makes it an investable company as far as I'm concerned. Perfect. Like, it's everything. <laughs> Vito's waiting for Finn outside. What is Finn most afraid of in that moment?
1: You think he's, uh, that, that, that Vito's kind of coming on to him?
0: Think Vito's going to jump him in the toilet? I, I think he's more worried about
1: getting whacked than, than getting whacked off.
0: Finn de Trolio, my arch nemesis. You got any reference or connectivity on that
1: phrase? That makes me think of like the Wrath of Khan, Star Trek. Okay. Arch nemesis. I don't know. I don't know if it's a specific reference. It's pretty terrifying though.
0: Yeah. Especially when you're literally blocked in by a porta potty. The choice is to back into a porta potty, or a choice to back into or to plunge into Vito's belly. It's a complicated ask there for any human. <laughs> um, Vito's got two tickets to Yankees Padres, though. Relax, relax, Vic. Relax, Ron. Relax, Finn. It's just a couple of tickets to a ball game, right? Right. Finn goes back into the porta potty and actually sits on it. I have a huge issue. With this, no, that is unacceptable to me on so many levels. Sitting on a porta potty, it is an unwritten law—if there ever was one—that you do not put any part of your body on a porta potty. Is that unreasonable, or is that California bullshit, Ron? That's not unreasonable.
1: I would have had to call Lil Polly over with a hose and a bucket because I think I would have shit my pants.
0: (laughs) Back at home with Meadow. Finn refuses to go to the game. He's watching the pregame on Yes. Finn confirms Vito wants to kill him or have sex with him or both. Meadow asks if that's why Finn got out the suitcase. The fucking suitcase, Ron, (laughs) should have been in the credits. Absolutely. He doesn't want to go back to the job site. Meadow vacillates, like Tony, this whole thing about you not wanting to commit is her point. The suitcase is his process, we learn. There was no abundant intentionality about me getting out the suitcase, he says, just thinking out loud via action. I can relate. My process of thinking out loud via action is vacuuming dog hair as soon as I get home. What's yours? Really? (laughs) What do you do via action to think out loud? To think out loud. I, you know what? That's
1: actually when my guitar comes into play. Okay. That's what I do very often when I get home from work. Just pick up and strum, like not even any particular song.
0: Some people take suitcases out, some people vacuum dog hair, and other people play their guitar. You clearly are the most logical person in this trifecta. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, but I, I love Finn's lame excuse, though. You know, he pulled out the suitcase because he was thinking about fucking skipping town. Yeah. But he hides it behind this kind of intellectual
0: mumbo-jumbo. And it's, you know, my process. To wrap this scene, tit for tat, right? Hunters in Montreal, we learn. Meadow says she can just leave too. Cut to Yankee Stadium. Vito goes in alone. What's he thinking right there, number one? And also point out in your write-up your connection of Yankee Stadium to a phallic symbol.
1: Oh, the bat. <laughs> I think Vito is just trying to get a handle on the situation, right? The, the baseball bat in front of Yankee Stadium could be a phallic symbol, like he wants to fuck Finn. It could also be a symbol of, you know, a murder weapon. But I don't think there's any way that Finn would have been killed that night.
0: Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. Do you think that Vito is thinking, how do I whack this guy before he talks? Right then, at Yankee Stadium. No,
1: I, I mean, so so Vito does know Finn's last name now, right? Yeah, I think that's a possibility in the future. But yes, I think right now, I think Vito's intention is he's just trying to get a feel on Finn. Maybe just kind of prove that he's just a regular guy, you know, baseball watching guy. And maybe, maybe he also wanted to try to continue to
0: intimidate him. This is all conjecture, Ron. Right. If Finn goes to that game, is that his last day on earth?
1: No. You know, he's too closely connected to Meadow Soprano and Tony Soprano for anything to happen that night.
0: Agreed. Cut back to the city. It's 4 a.m. Meadow and Finn are still going through their thing. Finn is throwing the options thing back at Meadow. Contrast how she handles hearing about her own options versus when she told her mother to explore marital options with Tony. Nice connectivity there with how all these people can behave like Tony Soprano
1: right interesting
0: Finn falls asleep but she can't get over the suitcase she runs into the bathroom and cries which takes on more meaning for me now that you mentioned the mirror and the Picasso painting is she looking at herself in the mirror then Finn thinks hard maybe we should get married (laughs) I can't think it's too late he says it's just something I feel very strongly. Almost sounds kind of like Little Carmine. Rank this proposal, Ron, on an all-time list. All-time list? Not convincing. No, it's not. My favorite
1: proposal is Christopher's. Right. Do you remember that one?
0: Yes, I absolutely do.
1: Right. He, he ran up the stairs. He, he pushed Adriana, pushes the mother out of the way. Pulls the phone out of her hand so that she can't call the police. And then just blurts something out like, I want to marry you, Adriana.
0: It's actually so nice that you brought that up because Adriana's reaction is almost the same as Meadows. They're both right. like putty in their hands, yeah, absolutely. and it's it's a beautiful piece of writing because we know Meadow to be a super smart, independent, focused young woman. Right yeah. under normal circumstances, like we talked about earlier, she would have shrugged this off. But it goes to show you that with matters of the heart, throw common sense, best practices, logical behavior out the window just not their window ron because of the smell (laughs) and she's showing her youth here right as we all do and as we all do well into our advanced age too our youth comes out in moments like this you would think that experience you'd be able to benefit from but sometimes when especially when it comes to interpersonal relationships it's totally relatable regularness of life
1: yeah Absolutely, and and how much do you think the insomnia or not having enough sleep played into this marriage proposal?
0: Big time, big time. Which is why I can't get over why she didn't why she took it so seriously. Right. Cuts a Carm walking out of a grocery store. Interestingly, this was filmed in Atlantic Beach, New York, not New Jersey. Oh. This was obviously either production logistics, Ron, or Carmella scouting beachfront property, hoping her forensic accountants would scrape up enough for a down payment. Wow,
1: that's interesting.
0: Well, we learn it's definitely the former (laughs) because a lawyer calls. He hit a snag, which is a great dickish choice of word. (laughs) All the accountants, think of all the words you could use right there. They chose snag. It's so deliberate. All the accountants backed off when they heard T was the defendant. Lawyer says he has a full caseload and that he should have mentioned, click. I always wondered what else he should have mentioned to her. Any thoughts?
1: You know, what, whatever he might have said right there, it's definitely just another lame excuse.
0: Yes! Thank you for saying that.
1: Right. That's what this hour is all about.
0: Yep. Thematically holding me together... While I fumble through this. Thank you. True friend. (laughs) Carmela's groceries. Here's a reach. Carmela's groceries consisted of milk and foil. Tony foiled her plan and then enjoyed some milk and cookies. Afterward.
1: Uh I love that. I'll go with that.
0: Cut to the quietude of Melfi's office. Biggest scene of the episode, Ron? Very possibly
1: it may even be the biggest scene that we've ever had in Melfi's office.
0: I'm with you. I woke up this morning and the depression just washed over me. I literally said that to my wife yesterday. I wasn't really that depressed. It's okay. But she, I just wanted to make the statement because I was laying in the bed, just sort of like staring up at the ceiling. And she's like, what's wrong? And this was fresh in my mind. I said, I woke up this morning and depression just washed over me. You want to know what her response was? Okay. Go change Ben's diaper. <laughs> <laughs> the regularness of life, Ron. It keeps you grounded, man. He tells her that the panic attacks have been coming back. And he blames her. They started happening after she rebuffed him, he says. Tony can't tell her what he wants to tell her about Tony B, so they dance around the fucking then Tony tells her about the hijack 17 years ago. He talks about criminality with her, Ron, which is ultra rare. But he lies to her about why. He went to NAM and I went to 4F. Reference is NAM prison? Is that code for prison? Yeah, definitely. And is 4F the hospital room that he was in that night? Uh huh. That's a good take. 4F.
1: Uh, I know that our current commander in chief uh, was classified for uh, back during Nam. Um... And what does that mean? Unfit? Yeah, he was unfit. Oh, really? Absolutely.
0: Wow. So 4F is a true designation. I did not look that up. Yeah. I'm, I'm literally asking you. Yeah, yeah. We we don't know
1: why because it's uh, not public. But but it's it's unfit to serve.
0: Melfi says, "Come clean with him, with Tony B." So he comes clean to her, his own version, Ron, of Bino, if you will. <laughs> I had a fight with my mother and I had a fucking panic attack.
1: So when you talk about lame excuses, right, t- Tony's not feeling well because he's on the verge of this, you know, significant psychological breakthrough, but he tries to put it on gas Like, that's the reason why he doesn't feel well. And he asked for some, beano. That might be, like, the greatest lame excuse of the episode.
0: In the most important moment of the episode. And certainly the most important Melfi moment, arguably, of the series. Wow. Wow. Which, on a very deep level, what you have just either overtly or indirectly articulated is that it's all a big fucking nothing. It's all all bullshit. (laughs) That's
1: it. It's just a big fart.
0: Oh, my God. Well, I had a fight with my mother, and I had a fucking panic attack. She asks, obviously, if he's communicated this to people, and he says, no, I lied. Again, to your point, Ron, what am I going to tell them? What am I going to tell all of them? This is a deeply revelatory statement. It shows Tony as afraid, as embarrassed, and ashamed. Again, Ron, the oscillations. He gives us every human emotion, every week, emotions we all feel every day or at various times throughout our life, and his working through it all in front of us is what makes this whole experience ceaselessly amazing. Well said. Like taking a shit, Tony says. <laughs> Melfi prefers to think of it as childbirth. But what's wrong with taking a shit? <laughs> this is some of the best moments I've had as a dad, to be honest with you, is when I can go in the bathroom and just close the damn door. <laughs> I'm talking about revelatory experiences Taking a shit is certainly one of them.
1: Well, I don't know what childbirth is like, but I have taken some good shits.
0: This might be TMI, but are you a reader on the can? I'm a big reader. Oh,
1: I can't go into the toilet without my phone.
0: Okay, I extend my relationship with the can so that I can finish whatever it is that I'm reading or whatever. So it's like, it's a special, it's a sacred place, Tony. is my point. I hear you. Winding things up, cut to Carm, ripping up the driveway. She sees the Escalade parked. Tony's floating in the back, another throwback. Also bookending, right? This notion of heat this episode. Right. Michael Mann over here. <laughs> her top, Ron. Yeah. The X symbolic a scarlet letter of sorts, symbolizing her imminent divorce from Tony maybe. And then Meadow calls. Finn proposed. We're getting married. Is that what you call it? (laughs) Classic, are you sure, from Carmella. (laughs) Ron, Carmella for once can't compartmentalize. Yeah. She collapses right in front of us as effortlessly as her counterpart a scene ago. Mm. The acting is impeccable. The simultaneous contrast of the end of the marriage And the beginning of one is a beautiful thought to fade us out to, if I were a carpenter and you were a lady, would you marry me anyway? This version sung by Bobby Darin. I loved your observation, and I want to end on that, that this sentimentality was earned. Earned is the word you used in your write-up that sort of knocked me on my ass the sentimentality was earned, you said, and that you put this song choice up there as your favorite song selection of the series. Talk about this earned moment and talk about the song choice. And if that still stands for you, please.
1: Uh, it might still stand for me. Um, you know, the, what I meant by earned is just that it's, it's not mawkish, right? It's not overly sentimental. Like it it kind of brings a tear to your eye, this, this, uh, this version of the song and it appearing at the end of this episode. And it's, it's a brilliant song choice too, because it kind of, you know, it's, it's a blue collar love song, right? Like I, I it, would you still love me if I'm working as a carpenter and not making a whole lot of money? So that kind of ties into to uh, Finn working this blue-collar job at the construction site, it also ties into into Carmela. That does she want to reconcile for the money, right? You you mentioned the uh, the cross that you can see around her neck. You know, you also see a bunch of gold bracelets there, mm-hmm. uh, gold necklaces. So is it, you know, is it is it is that what the reconciliation is about for her?
0: interesting you mentioned Carpenter. Well, the song mentions Carpenter. The very beginning of the episode, we see Mother Mary. Uh, oh. And Joseph, if I'm not mistaken, was a carpenter.
1: That's right. That's and right. so
0: was Jesus.
1: Come full circle.
0: So if we want to get really abundantly intentional here, wow! this episode was bookended with religiosity on an unprecedented scale.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's it's really kind of a heartbreaking scene because, you know, earlier we had we had we had heard Carmela say to her daughter, "You have options. I have a lawyer." Right? Hmm. Like, but just before this scene, we saw Carmela lose her lawyer. So now Carmela doesn't have options or a lawyer. Right? She's looking out at Tony in the pool. And she's kind of enslaved here, right? She doesn't have a way out. I think that's how she feels. I don't know if that's true, but I think that's how she feels. Nailed it. You know, and the contrast between that feeling and the sort of sweetness of the song is, it, it's, it's terrible. I mean, it's
0: terribly ironic. You nailed it, brother. <laughs> Any final thoughts? Did we miss anything? Did we do this episode justice between our Pata Bing conversation and your beautiful Sopranos autopsy write-up? Can we put it to bed? I think we got pretty much everything right. The only thing we didn't do, to be honest, is get into the uh, Joe Perry Aerosmith discography but that would have taken a couple of three extra hours and uh, maybe that could be a Pata Bing PhD episode that we do when we get into the music of some of these episodes together
1: oh man that'd be great sound like a plan sounds good
0: Ron this has been an honor and a privilege and it means the world to me thank you so much for spending time with me on this episode and thank you so much for all the work that you've done on Sopranos Autopsy it is some of the best writing forget about Sopranos it is just some of the best writing that exists on the internet so I appreciate this I wish you well during this wild and crazy time And I look forward to seeing you again in person when we get through this pandemic.
1: Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Skip. I had a blast. We'll do this again. Take care, brother. Take care.